0: Good morning and happy Friday Twitter. You're watching AM to DM. I'm Hayes Brown, joined by Stephanie McNeil. Stephanie, how are we doing today?
1: You know, I am feeling great, and yeah. the whole reason for that is my producers didn't stick me outside in the middle of a hurricane and watch as I helplessly get battered by a storm.
0: I know, right? I you see the people out there and they are just looking the saddest. Wet puppies and kittens, a lot of them, reporting out in the rain like that.
1: Yeah, it's become kind of, I guess, a trope of cable news mm-hmm. to see, I guess, whose anchor slash reporter can get the most wet, the right. most battered. It seems a little dangerous to me. What do you think of that trope? Do you, are, I, are you entertained by it or do you think it's a little weird?
0: I think it's pretty weird. I mean, I don't really get much out of it. I don't know what exactly people are learning except for the fact as, I guess as the president said, it's tremendously wet out there. I don't know.
1: I guess it, they're trying to prove that it actually is a hurricane, but it just seems a little silly to me.
0: Well, my question for you though is, do you have any favorites in the drenched reporter genre?
1: yeah so i was kind of flipping through my twitter timeline this morning looking at all of these poor reporters and i picked out three mvps of hurricane florence that i've seen so far we have ginger z for good morning america just getting absolutely hammered by this storm Poor Ginger, I mean, that hat's not really helping her. And then we have Dylan Dreyer, doesn't even, oh, does she have a hat? You can't even tell because you can't (laughs) even see her because she's so messed up. I think she does have a hat, but it's not helping her at all. Mm -mm. And finally, we have David Muir with ABC News. I mean, you can barely see him because the camera is so covered in rain. And, you know, shout out to the cameramen, too, who don't get, I guess, the glory of being on TV during all of this, but are still getting drenched. Um, I have to say, though, Mm -hmm. I think my favorite was David Muir because not only could you not see him because there is so much rain on the camera, Mm -hmm. but also I think I saw him spit out flood water at one point. I mean, that could just be an optical illusion. True
0: champion. All excellent choices. And let's be sure, though, to save a shout out for the Weather Channel, who put together an amazing graphic yesterday that shows just how dangerous the flood waters from Florence can be. And through the magic of a green screen, they did it all from the comfort and safety of a studio. Check it out if you haven't yet. I mean, did you see this thing?
1: Oh, it was incredible. It was incredible graphic. Uh, One of our colleagues, Dorsey Shaw, tweeted out, eat your heart out, CNN. And
0: I'm sure they are right now.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was a really good way to describe the storm and show its impact without, you know, putting your reporter in danger. Right. But, you know, to each their own. Well, speaking of Hurricane Florence, it is battering the North Carolina coast as we speak. The storm has been downgraded to a Category 1, but that doesn't mean it isn't still a threat.
0: As Dr. Marshall Shepard, a meteorologist and professor of geography at the University of Georgia tweeted, the real danger of Florence is how slow it is moving. This is what I have been calling phase B of Hurricane Florence. The slow movement and stall equals major flooding, falling trees, power outages for days. I think many people underestimated phase B in Harvey. Dr. Shepard joins us
2: now. Hi doctor. Hey guys, how's it going?
1: It's going great. Thanks for joining us again.
2: Yeah, no, this is, uh, you know, this storm's been behaving the way we thought it would. Uh, As you just noted there, I'm always nervous when we talk about the storm is downgraded to this or it's weakened to that or it's just cat two. Uh, uh, A simple reminder that Hurricane Sandy was barely a cat one and maybe not so. And when all that rain four feet or so in Hurricane Harvey fell in Houston, it was not even a hurricane. It was a tropical storm at that point. So the message I'm really trying to convey at this point is we are in phase B of this this storm and uh, let's not get too sort of anchored into the category of the storm. Let's talk more about the impacts going forward. And that's, I'm really worried because we're talking about perhaps two to three feet of rain from this thing
1: yeah that's a great point and i was hoping you could expand on it a bit you said in one of your tweets that you think the emphasis on what category a hurricane is is flawed can you explain that a little bit
2: did, and even just minutes before we came on the air, I just published an article in Forbes magazine online, their Forbes Science, on this very topic. Uh, uh, so go follow me at Doctor Shepherd 2013 and read that. But yeah, the, the category, the Cat 1, Cat 2, Cat 3, that's all about the wind speed. Mm. And yes, that's certainly important, but as we saw with Hurricane Harvey, as we saw with Sandy, and now as we're seeing now with Florence, the most deadly aspect of hurricanes has always been water, whether that's storm surge or the flooding from all the rainfall. Yet the Saffir-Simpson scale, that category doesn't capture that. It's all about wind. So, uh, you know, one of the things, when this storm went from category four to category two, the wind speeds went down, but the size of the storm and the rainfall associated with it went up. So the danger for me never uh, changed. And so that's why we're, you know, really calling and sounding the signal on this storm.
0: So what are the storm similarities so far to other storms like Hurricane Harvey?
2: Yeah, well, the, the main similarity so far to Harvey is that it will slow down and perhaps stall, kind of hang out for a while on the coast. And uh, dump a lot of rainfall. And so I just looked on Twitter and saw uh, that there are over 500,000 or nearly 500,000 power outages right now. When you get this rainfall, you get flooding. That's one hazard, but you also get falling trees because the soil is wet. Those trees fall onto power lines, and so you lose power as well. So uh, there are going to be a host of problems over the next 24 to 48 hours with the storm, even though it's already made landfall and even though, quote unquote, it's just a category one, it's still a very dangerous storm.
1: Have the predictions and the models been correct so far or have you been seeing any big surprises?
2: No, absolutely. In fact, look, I I tweeted something out earlier. I, I, I was talking about the storm and many others were two weeks ago or a week ago that the storm was in fact i tweeted uh, a conversation that i was having with a key decision maker here in the state of georgia last saturday and he was asking what do you think about the storm i said well i think it's going to make landfall sometime friday morning near the north carolina south carolina border that was based on model information a week ago. So, yeah, this thing has been pretty good. There were some uncertainties that was as, uh, in the models as it got closer to the coast, mm-hmm. and that's just simply because of the fact that the steering currents were weak. But this is, again, another highlight of the ability of our models now to really nail down these track forecasts five, seven, even some cases, 10 days out. Now the intensity forecast, still a little bit iffy with that at times. And we've known that in the weather community, uh, we still have some ways to go and pinpointing the intensity forecast many days out.
0: I want to highlight this tweet from meteorologist Brad Johnson. We have a real problem with communication. I know someone that evacuated from near Florence, South Carolina, the city, but actually went back home this morning after they saw Florence was now a category two. Wind was never their threat. Dr. Shepard, why shouldn't people return home yet?
2: Yeah, yeah I, love, I love that tweet by Brad. And let me give him a shout out to Brad Johnson, shout out That Weatherproof. He's actually one of my doctoral students at University of Georgia, now hey. working in NAPA. <laughs> and what he's saying there is, for someone living in Florence, South Carolina, the threat was always rain and lots of it. And no matter whether it was a category two or a category four, the threat for them never changed. And yet, you know, there's this perception anchored in our belief about uh, the category being the danger because of the wind. And it's also why you've got people on Twitter and certain political entities whining that the meteorologists are overhyping the storm because apparently they don't understand the danger and threat too is not just anchored in the category of the storm.
1: It's so interesting, too, because, like you said, we saw this in Harvey, mm-hmm. where it was not really hyped as a huge storm that we thought. And then there was this massive flooding. We had to do all of these evacuations. So what can we in the media, because this is our responsibility, do to convey the nuances of this so people aren't thinking, oh, it's only a category one. I can just go home.
2: Well, I think that's right. Well, I, let me just say that we were, did very much hype the uh, Harvey in the meteorological circles. We were warning about it a week in advance. I wrote a Forbes article a week before the storm saying it was going to produce 40 to 50 inches of rain. So meteorologists knew what was going to happen with Harvey, just like we know what's going to happen with Florence. So what we need from the media is a de-emphasis on the category and more emphasis on impacts. So hurricanes have impacts that are not just the wind and the guy standing out there that you guys are just talking about holding on to the stop sign in the wind. That's all telegenic and photogenic. But the real danger of these storms is the storm surge and the flooding. And that necessarily is not related to the wind speed of the storm. It's how large the storm is in size and how slowly it's moving. Florence is moving very slowly right now. So we're going to see a lot of rainfall. And the other thing I'm worried about with Florence here in the next few hours, uh, it made landfall at low tide. But it's moving so slowly that when high tide comes back around, Mm. it's going to still be there. So we're going to see a lot of surge moving into those inlets and rivers.
1: So people from the Carolinas who might have evacuated and are wondering when they might be able to return home, what would you say to them?
2: Yeah, well, the first thing I would say is make sure you or wherever you have evacuated to, uh, make sure you're listening to your local emergency managers on uh, outlets and media. Make sure you have the the FEMA app and even your local state's uh, emergency preparedness app because they're going to provide the information that you need on when you're going to be able to go back. Is there still power out at your home? Because that's another problem. Even if you, even once this moves out in a couple of days, you still may be without power. Uh, and certainly people, those thousands of people, by the way, it was thousands of people that died in Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, certainly know about being without power for uh, weeks to months. And so, uh, yeah, just follow your emergency officials, follow Twitter, make sure you have uh, your, your cell phones charged. Keep those phones on airplane mode to conserve battery if you don't have power.
0: Well,
1: thank you so much for explaining all of this to us, Dr. Shepherd, we'll be following you on Twitter and I know all of our viewers will too.
0: Thank you. Meanwhile, here in New York, we will have four more years likely of Governor Andrew Cuomo after he easily beat Cynthia Nixon in the New York Democratic primary yesterday. As Stephen T. Watson of the Buffalo News reported, the AP called the race for Cuomo with 40% of precincts in statewide. He's up big, 65% to 34%.
1: Well, our reporter Ryan Brooks was at the Nixon watch party last night when the result came in and joins us now. Hey, Ryan.
3: Hey, good morning.
1: So was this a huge loss for the progressive movement? Are they completely despondent right Done. now?
3: Shambles. Uh, so I'm not so sure that this is a huge loss for the progressive movement. There were a lot of like down-ballot wins. And uh, sort of like they framed it as... Uh, I mean, Cynthia Nixon obviously lost, and uh, but there are a lot of IDC challengers that were ousted um, last night. So six of the eight of these, like, independent, independent Democrats uh, that caucus with the Republicans in the state Senate uh, were, they dissolved, but they were ousted by the Working Families Party. Um, and they sort of see this as a sea change for Albany and that progressive policies have the chance to, like, get to Andrew Cuomo's desk now. Um, so they have framed it as sort of a win for them.
0: So you were at nixon's watch party last night what was the mood like there as the results started to pour in uh so it was
3: a joint watch party for cynthia nixon jumani williams and zephyr teachout uh, which was sort of the working families party ticket and so obviously nixon lost and people were upset about that uh but as these idc challenge primaries were rolling in like people were really excited to see that they had the opportunity to get these progressive policies like passed Um, Or at least, like I said, to get them to the desk of Andrew Cuomo. Uh, So they were giving speeches uh, as these results were rolling in. They would say afueda, like when they uh, would say an IDC uh, former senator's name um, to say that they were getting out of the Senate and that they had these sort of like leftist people going into the Senate to sort of like get through some of these policies. They were really excited about that.
1: (laughs) I wanna highlight this analysis from Vox's Matt Iglesias. He said, Nixon, it should be said, really took one for the team here. No real politicians wanted to run a hopeless race. She stepped up, pushed Cuomo left on issues, shed light on the IDC situation and contributed meaningfully to their defeat. Not bad work at all. So do you agree with this, Ryan? Do you think the Nixon campaign did make a real impact in the state?
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. So this has sort of been like the uh, winning moment for the progressive movement across the country. They're challenging these Democratic incumbents in primaries, and they're uh, getting them to move further to the left. So uh, here in New York, uh, Andrew Cuomo said that he was going to use his uh, power of the pardon to Uh, bring uh, voting rights back to 35,000 felons through the course of the primary. Uh, He called for a study on marijuana and he called it a gateway drug uh, last year. Um, So that was a huge turnaround uh, for him. Um, He also instituted, he wants to institute a plastic bag ban, uh, which has been sort of a progressive goal for people downstate, uh, especially here in New York City. Um, So yeah, it's just been really interesting to sort of see these progressive challengers sort of push the party further left through these uh, primary challenges. I know uh, Carrie Evelyn Harris was up here last night. Uh, she was the Delaware Senate candidate that challenged Tom Carper. Um, so it's just this sort of progressive movement that's like pushing together across the country to sort of push the whole Democratic Party further left.
0: So what do you think then about Cynthia Nixon's political dreams? Are they dead? Is she just no longer going to be a factor in the party?
3: I don't think that she's no longer going to be a factor in the party. She's obviously gained this momentum and built this sort of campaign um, and what people know about sort of the state of politics in New York and the state of the Democratic Party. So people are listening to her. People are listening to sort of this leftist movement that's coming up. Um, and they obviously have the power to sort of push these establishment Democrats further left. So I think she still has a place in the party.
1: So speaking of Nixon, her big platform was (laughs) Fix the Subway, and she lost. So are we going to fix the subway? Because that is what's on every New Yorker's mind right now.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I really would like it fixed. Um, The L is horrendous, and I would (laughs) like to get to work on time. So if somebody could fix the subway, I would really appreciate it. But who knows when that will get done. literally
1: everyone in the studio is like nodding their heads like we need to (laughs) fix the subway (laughs) thank you so much ryan
3: yep have a good one
1: okay twitter we want to hear from you what do you make of cynthia nixon's defeat is it a moral victory for progressive democrats that they pushed cuomo left or is it just another crushing defeat and now you feel hopeless and the subway is going to ruin your life tweet us your hashtag amtdm and let us know your thoughts
0: Yesterday, the leader of Myanmar, Nobel Laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, backed a court decision to imprison two Reuters reporters for seven years for reporting on the massacre of members of the Rohingya ethnic minority at the hands of the government.
1: BuzzFeed News' Asia correspondent, Megha Rajagopalin tweeted this, quoting Suu Kyi, "...they were not jailed because they were journalists. They were jailed because the court has decided that they have broken the official secrets act and Mega added her commentary just wow. Mega joins us now. Hey, hey Mega, good morning. So for morning. those who haven't caught up on this story, just who are the Rohingya and why are they facing these attacks from the government?
4: Basically, the Rohingya are a Muslim ethnic minority group. They're, they're the biggest Muslim group in Myanmar, and um, they live primarily in this, uh, this part of the country called Rakhine State. And um, the government just doesn't even recognize them as citizens. Some of those families have been in that country since the 15th century, but they're just completely disenfranchised. And um, 700,000 of them were driven from the country last fall and what the, um, the UN has called a textbook example of ethnic cleansing.
0: So what is the Official Secrets Act that these journalists supposedly broke uh, when they were doing their reporting?
4: I mean, the Official Secrets Act is actually a colonial era act. It's from when the British, um, you know, had power over Myanmar, then called Burma from 1923. And um, it's like under a provision of the act that, um, you know, has jurisdiction over documents that could be seen as aiding the enemy. So who knows what that means? Yeah, Su Chi, like
1: we said, is a Nobel laureate. Where has she been through all of this?
4: Yeah, so... The important thing to note here is that Sushi does not control the military. The military is still really powerful in Myanmar. They control three key ministries. She couldn't have stopped the Rohingya crisis, but she has the ability to secure a pardon for these journalists. And she wouldn't even lose that much in terms of political capital if she decided to do it. And she literally could have done it at any time. She still could do it at any time. And um, the interesting thing is that you know bef- before their actual conviction, um, everybody was just sort of parsing the state statements of Suu Kyi's advisors, like she hadn't really said anything that explicit. So people thought like, okay, well, maybe she's sympathetic, but she's just not coming out. But like, you know, yesterday she made her views about it very, very clear, like um, I think a lot of people that were hoping for uh, an amnesty or pardon are going to be disappointed.
0: So there's been so much international pressure on her that clearly hasn't worked so far. Do you think that at this point, the Reuters reporters should just expect to serve the full term in a Myanmar prison?
4: Well, I mean, on the other hand, there is this kind of um, long tradition of pardons for political prisoners in Myanmar. It's sort of seen as this um, way for the government to show its benevolence. Right. So, you know, perhaps if the international pressure continues, like certainly it's it's really grown in scope and in ferocity. Um, Nikki Haley has just come out, um, you know, basically saying that it's disgraceful what, what Suu Kyi has said. If that continues, then, I mean, who knows? Uh, I think that she could find an excuse um, to give them that amnesty.
1: Well, thank you so much, Mega, for reporting on this really important story for us. We'll definitely keep an eye on it. Well, we've got a great show for you today. I am speaking with Drive Our founder, Ali Webb, for a new Ladies Who Lead, which I'm very excited about. And we're going to show you Isaac's interview with Peter Dinklage and Reed Morano. Super exciting. But first, we have some Friday Fire tweets. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right, guys, welcome back. I just wanted to shout out a really important point we got from one of our most loyal viewers, Rachel Hey Girl Field. She tweeted us People underestimate hurricanes with women's names. We need to outroot sexism. That is so true. I have Facts. heard that before. And I think that was actually cited with Katrina that people yeah. didn't take Katrina seriously. And
0: look at what happened there. So, yeah. uh, guys, women matter (laughs) yeah
1: i don't know just like maybe they matter i don't know who knows let's move on to the tweets oh yes (laughs) okay
0: so first up we have brad (laughs)
1: wow that was really violent
0: yeah it was (laughs) when i worked at a deli in college i once made a sandwich for a 100-year-old woman, and it got back to me that she called it the worst sandwich she had ever eaten.
1: See, I would kind of almost call bullshit on that tweet, Brad, but it's just so sad it's that I so kind of brutal. believe you.
0: I, I'm i with Brad on this one.
1: Yeah. Oh, hi, Brad. OK. Aparna tweeted, nobody is as thirsty right now as the pharmacy trying to get you your flu shot. Hayes, do you usually get a flu shot?
0: I mean to get a flu shot every year, whether it happens. Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny.
1: They come to the office, I, come on. I know.
0: Anyway, another tweet this you say. You will. Bam! Malice. If you've ever withheld a fave or a retweet of an excellent tweet because it was by somebody you dislike, rationally or irrationally, you're my people can also neither confirm nor deny that I have done this in the past.
1: It's just that people sometimes put their worst personalities on Twitter, not me, not you. Not any of our viewers. No, you're great. But some people do, and I just can't stand them sometimes. (laughs) I just get, I don't know. It's like we have so much rage in our hearts for the news cycle, Mm -hmm. sometimes we just put it out on.
0: Oh, that was a great tweet. Who was it by, um, scroll.
1: (laughs) I hope you never do that to me. Never. Okay, I believe you. (laughs) Ariel, oh Ariel, I went to college with Ariel, shout out. DC, bagels are nice. (laughs) NYC, you call that a bagel? DC, we enjoy pizza. NYC, your pizza pales in comparison to our pizza. That's my impression of a New Yorker. (laughs) DC, our metro system is sometimes disappointing. NYC, our subways are dysfunctional to a degree of which you can only dream. We win. (laughs)
0: As someone who has lived in both D.C. and New York, I will agree that the New York City subway, the the scope of the problems just dwarfs the D.C. metro system by far, but fewer fires I've noticed.
1: I have to say that nothing enrages people I work with here in New York more than speaking of bagels I ate at home in California. Oh God. They're like, I say like, oh yeah, I used to go get a bagel. And they're like, that wasn't a bagel. All
0: right, next up, bam, Sarazita. I was born in the wrong century. I really just want to be an artisan in the Middle Ages, dedicating my life to crafting precisely one stained glass window and then dying at 21. That sounds like life a great was job. simpler back then. Just 21, done.
1: Yeah, done. you know, I, I would have like five kids by now.
0: Retirement plan, what's that?
1: You don't need one because you're dead.
0: We we're <laughs> cheery this Friday. <laughs>
1: All right, you ready for the tea of the day? Stat. It is from Jave White. Why do paintings of people centuries ago never show pimples? You're telling me these people who drank shit water and took baths two times a decade had clear skin? A little bit of a history lesson for you, Javay. I was reading that Queen Elizabeth actually was covered in smallpox scars, but right. forced everyone to paint her as very, like, beautifully skinned. Mm
0: -hmm. And she wore this like pale powder for it that was actually filled with lead.
1: And slowly killed her.
0: Cheery Friday, everyone.
1: Anyway, (laughs) when we come back, we're going live from the district for more cheery news. Stay tuned. (laughs)
0: Welcome back, we are going live from the district with BuzzFeed News White House correspondent Tarini Party. Good morning, Tarini.
5: Good morning, guys. Tarini, just to start out, we know
1: that your family lives in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, so we just wanted to check in on them. Are they doing okay? Did they get out?
5: Yeah, I've been texting them this morning and, you know, Raleigh's not on the coast so they're seeing a lot of winds and rain and it's supposed to pick up even more this afternoon, but they're safe and they're they're prepared. They've got their, their food and water and batteries, so they're all good.
0: Okay, great. Great,
5: that's good to know.
0: Okay, so here is a tweet from Matt Berman about Trump's Hurricane Maria tweets yesterday. This isn't a fun conspiracy theory like Tupac and Elvis faking their own deaths to live in sub-Saharan Africa. This involves the complete whitewashing of real people dying due to government inaction.
1: Yeah, so we heard from Nindy Prakash yesterday, who has been covering this story from the beginning. But Trini, for you specifically, I want to focus on the reaction to that tweet storm in the White House. What are people saying?
5: Yeah, so from the people I talked to, there was just sort of a lot of confusion, frustration, anger. Some were baffled. You know, this is a moment where obviously the hurricane was approaching. The president was talking a lot about what they were doing to prepare for it. And then obviously he went and sort of messed it up with this uh, conspiracy theory. And it was just a lot of, you know, why is this necessary?
0: Okay. But is there any tweet that Trump can send that will really, like, hit a peak level of outrage that we haven't seen before at this point?
5: So I think for us, um, you know, in D.C. and just people of the world were, were so numb to these tweets that you're right, it is hard to sort of get to that outrage level, but I think that's why yesterday, with, with the tweets that we saw, I did manage to get to that outrage level, and there were a lot of people upset by it, asking not just the White House, but also Republicans on the Hill to answer for the president. Uh, but in terms of the White House, I mean, yes, they were outraged, but also you know, you're know, you not going to see the the level of outrage that we saw after Charlottesville when there was talk about resignation and whatnot there's there's this sort of sense that uh, a lot of people who work for this president are resigned to uh, these types of tweets and they might be frustrated but they're not gonna get to the point where they're actually going to do something about it
1: yeah i saw a piece in politico this morning that was saying that trump's staff was just kind of ignoring the (laughs) tweets that's kind of their new strategy can you elaborate on that a little bit
5: That definitely seems to be what what these aides are doing based on people I've talked to. I mean, they feel like, you know, the way only way to sort of get through the day and get through their jobs is to keep their heads down and focus on what they're doing and sort of ignore everything else. We saw a little bit of that with um, Sarah Sanders. She was she did a brief gaggle right after the um, right after Trump tweeted. And she was outside the, the, the White House talking to a couple of reporters. And right when the questions about the tweets came up, she sort of just ignored them and went about, you know, went back into the White House. So they're just trying to do what they can uh, and ignoring everything else, essentially.
0: How is the president's schedule this week or lack thereof affecting the style of tweeting that we're seeing from him?
5: So the president was supposed to have two rallies this week, on, on yesterday and today. He was supposed to be in Mississippi and Missouri. And, you know, the when he's doing these rallies, when he's traveling, when he has a full schedule, we see him tweet less. We see him sort of uh, watching cable news less and commenting on what he's seeing on TV less. So there's, you know, fewer opportunities for conspiracy theories popping up on his Twitter feed. Um, but now that he is, you know, has a clear schedule, he had a, an emergency preparedness meeting yesterday he has another one of those today but other than that he doesn't really have much on his schedule Um, and so there is more opportunity for us to see some of those tweets that we saw yesterday
1: okay well here's a tweet from Lissandra Via Senate Judiciary Dems have referred to a secret letter concerning Brett Kavanaugh to the FBI
0: And here is Paul McLeod with an important follow-up, reminder that the number of people who have actually read this letter is extremely small, and you should be skeptical of people on Twitter making claims about what's in it. So, Tarini, what exactly is this letter?
5: Yes. So this letter is something that was in the possession of Dian- Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's the ranking Democrat, Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, this letter came to her by way of another uh, California Democratic member of Congress. And all we can basically say is that it concerns uh, Brett Kavanaugh, but we don't know exactly what it says. Not many people are aware of what it says. But we at BuzzFeed News, uh, Lisa and Paul did contact the woman who is the, the subject of the who we believe to be the subject of this letter and she has declined to comment so that is essentially all we know about this letter at this point
1: so obviously when it comes to kavanaugh what we are concerned about is his nomination so is there a chance that this letter could affect his nomination or his chances for getting into the supreme court
5: I think that depends on what these allegations in this letter are. Um, you know, if they are even revealed, how serious they are, if they're you know, if they're serious at all. Um, I think a lot of those questions have been popping up since yesterday. The White House, of course, has said that this is, that this seems to be an attempt to sort of delay the the nomination, this last minute attempt. Um, so we'll see some of that uh, from the White House and uh, Repu- and their allies on the Hill. Um, but yeah, at this point, it's it's really hard to. Say.
0: So why is this just making news now considering you know, the hearings were last week and we're moving very quickly towards a vote on Kavanaugh?
5: So The Intercept uh, had a story earlier this week uh, that mentioned this letter. They kind of framed it as a fight among Democrats about what to do with this letter. Um, Senator Feinstein said that you know the, the subject of this letter has requested confidentiality, so she did not want others to look at this letter. Uh, Other senators um, from her party thought that they deserved to know what was in this letter. And so The Intercept, in sort of talking about that internal fight, mentioned this letter. And then um, other senators were sort of forced to respond to it, um, with Senator Feinstein putting out a statement yesterday uh, talking about the letter.
1: All right. Well, that's all very mysterious. So I guess we'll keep our eye on it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Jorini. Definitely. Yeah, Thanks, now I just kind of want to know what is in right? that letter. I mean, it, do we have a hint? I mean, come on.
0: Can we get a clue from yeah. the Senate? Just a, just a tiny clue. It's going to be, be something so boring. Anyway, it wouldn't be Friday without some breaking news this morning about former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort. BuzzFeed News legal editor Chris Geidner tweeted Breaking. Special Counsel's Office files superseding information against Paul Manafort, meaning a plea is expected. Chris joins us now. Good morning, Chris. Good morning, guys. (laughs) So, does this mean that
6: Manafort is cooperating with Mueller? Is that what we're looking at here? It's very important to know that a plea agreement is different than a cooperation agreement. A plea agreement means that that a plea deal is a a determination to avoid trial. Uh, That's all that it means. A cooperation agreement can be a part of a plea deal, but it doesn't have to be. And we've seen some instances in the Mueller investigation where people have had plea deals that included cooperation agreements. we also saw, for example, in Michael Cohen's guilty plea, there was no cooperation agreement involved. So we don't necessarily know. The plea hearing is set for 11 a.m., so the the top of the next hour. Uh, and Zoe Tillman, uh, our legal reporter, is there at the courthouse. So we'll have we'll know more. But what we know now is that he is avoiding this second trial that was scheduled to take place later this month in D.C. and will be. Ple- pleading guilty to charges, including witness tampering uh, uh, and, and conspiracy against the United States. So it, it's, it's a big deal. These were charges that the special counsel's office was going to have to go through a lengthy trial to prove. And, and Manafort, uh, they, they're dropping a lot of the charges, but Manafort has agreed to plead guilty to two of those in, in order to avoid that trial.
1: Do we have any insight as to why he went through with the first trial and now is pleading out the second? Do you think he got some bad vibes in the first trial? He feels <laughs> like, you know, he's not going to well, win this I, one. I mean,
6: well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was found guilty of eight charges. So uh, you're, you're probably, uh, I mean, I, I think <laughs> we can all make, make our own judgments of if, if you had two trials and... Uh, you were you were hoping to be found not guilty, and you were found guilty of half of the charges. You might think twice about one going through another one, two having to pay. I mean, that the it's expensive to have a top tier lawyer uh, representing you in a, a multi week trial, uh, and. and uh, they They were going going through their money quickly if if they they kept needing to to have lawyer Paul Manafort and his his wife had to keep spending money to to support uh, the, this legal habit he has now,
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you cut your losses after you already lose a little bit in the first one, yeah. okay, so you said we have this eleven a m hearing obviously Zoe's there. For those of us who may not have been paying attention super closely to the Manafort trial, but want to start paying attention now, what is something that we should be looking for at 11 a.m.?
6: Well, I mean, we'll, we'll find out. He'll, he'll have to do what's called an allocution. That means he'll ha- he'll have to basically talk about what he is pleading guilty to. And that's when we got the, the big news from Michael Cohen in his guilty plea that he said he was directed to do this. Um, the, the campaign violations that he pled guilty to uh, by the president, by, well, the candidate then, but now the president, Donald Trump. Um, and so we're, we're we're going to be looking very closely at, regardless of whether there's a cooperation agreement, what it is that Paul Manafort says at, at this hearing at 11. Um, does he say that these actions that that he took, any actions that he took during the campaign period were, were done in coordination with the Trump campaign, were done uh, at the direction of, of President Trump, or, or, for example. Uh Obviously, he, Paul Manafort, attended that, that infamous Trump Tower meeting with, with uh, Jared Kushner and, and Donald Trump Jr. Does he say anything about those things? Um, we're not expecting that, but, but you don't know what's going <laughs> to happen until they have the hearing. So we're, we're going to be watching really closely for that. And then, obviously, what we've already talked about, whether there is a cooperation agreement.
1: For sure. Well, we'll definitely be tuning in. Thanks so much, Chris, for breaking this down for us. Thanks. Up next, I speak with best-selling author and entrepreneur, Ali Webb. Stay tuned. Michelle Markowitz tweeted, there is no place with a higher expectation of how the night will turn out per capita than Drybar. Ain't love that, that the truth? I love that. Ali Webb, the founder of Drybar, New York Times bestselling author and the creator of Our High Expectations joins us now. Ali, thank you for making so many of our viewers look fab on their nights out.
7: My pleasure. Drybar was definitely something needed for women of the world. <laughs>
1: Definitely, definitely. <laughs> so obviously you found a dry bar, but you have a new project. Earlier this
7: summer, you launched a podcast, Raising the Bar, with Ali and Michael. Can you yes. talk about that a little bit? So my brother, Michael Landau, is my business partner, and. You know, since building Drybar, we're about almost nine years into it now. We've, I mean, gosh, I feel like I've gotten like an MBA in in business and learned so much and had so many ups and downs. And, you know, because of all of the learnings that we've had in growing Drybar, as you can imagine, a lot of people ask us, you know, how do you raise money and to ask us about branding and a million different things. And so we felt like a podcast was a great way to kind of share a lot of the knowledge that we've accumulated over the last you know almost nine years and give it give back I mean so many people have helped us along the way so the show is very much talking to you know entrepreneurs that you've heard of like Sarah Michelle Geller and Curtis Stone to like entrepreneurs you've never heard of who are in the very early stages of starting their business and just need advice and insight and so you know we're sharing what we've learned we're learning about other entrepreneurs it's been really fun and it's with my big brother so there's naturally a lot of funny banter and we just see the world very differently so there's there's this kind of of um, funny dynamic between us.
1: I mean, I have to ask you, I have two brothers, two younger brothers. Ah. So what is it like, you've built an empire with your brother? It's crazy, What is it like doing something like that with your sibling?
7: It's, you know, it's funny, because Michael and I worked together Years ago, we but we actually opened a couple of Nicole Miller boutiques licensed in Boca where we grew up, and we almost killed each other, and it was like the worst thing ever. And we have always been super, super close, and so that was a terrible experience. And of course, when we were deciding to work together and drive, our parents were like, Are you out of your mind? But you know, we learned so much, we were much younger then, and we learned how to push each other's buttons and how not to push each other's buttons. And you know, he's really the business side of the business, I'm the hair side of the business, I've been doing hair professionally for 20 plus years. So I, you know, I have a very specific skill set, as does he, which is why I think it works. And there's a great amount of respect from the two of us and what we do. So I think that's why it's worked. And, you know, we've we've loved it. We've had such a good time working together. No, no. We have a few fights here and there, but it's pretty smooth sailing.
1: One of the things I've seen you mention a lot of times is your brother and your husband, who you launched the business with, are both bald. Yes. And so, yeah, it's a great it's a good one. I like (laughs) it. So we've talked a lot on this series about what it's like as a woman pitching to venture capitalists a room full of men exactly and one of the things we've heard a lot is that men don't get things women need is that something you experienced as
7: well totally i mean when we first started you know looking to raise big money and we started talking to private equity groups i mean we were I mean, I felt very uncomfortable. You know, I'm like a big personality in a room with a bunch of men in suits who were like, what's a blowout? You know, and like maybe they had heard about it from their wife or sister or daughter or something, but they were definitely like, you know, didn't understand the opportunity and how this many women would do that. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very, it's, it's changing for sure. And there's so many more, you know, powerful women in those seats now, but it was definitely intimidating. And, uh, you know, there was, there was most of those meetings I left feeling like, um, n- n- no, they don't get it. They don't get the vision. They don't, they don't like love it the way we do. And it wasn't until we, um, we got partnered with, uh, Castanea, a private equity company out of Boston, and they just got it right away. They owned some other beauty brands and they understood it. And there was a woman, Janet Gurwich, was attached to Castanea, and she really, you know, she's the founder of Laura Mercier Cosmetics, which is like, you know, one of the best makeup brands out there. And so, you know, that was like the right partnership. And it's you know, when you're raising money, you need to find somebody that you feel like really understands your vision and wants to see it through and not try to change so many aspects of the business. And it's it's tough. It's It was a really like daunting, scary thing to do to raise money from these men who didn't really understand what we were doing.
1: What were some of the things, if you can think of an example, that men said to you that made you think, wow, they really do not get this? Well, I
7: think one of the big things was, like, why just blowouts? You know, you have a very captive audience, which we do, and we did, you know, of, like, 100 women who come in a day who we could sell all sorts of stuff to, and I was like, I feel very, very strongly about doing one thing and being the best at it, and for us, that was blowouts, and there was, you know, if if that wasn't understood, you Weren't the right partner for us and i think it served us well to stay very focused and be the best at just blowouts and so i stuck to my guns was that hard yeah it was hard and i think it was like you just kind of like you know cross your fingers and hope that like your gut which you know i'm such a believer in that that you have to follow your gut and your heart and and that's just how i felt about it and luckily i had the support of my husband and my brother who were like you know this is you know this is uh, we believe in you and this is this is how you see it and we understand the the importance of focusing on one thing and so you know it is like it is a stick to your guns kind of thing and really believe in your in your passion and what you believe and and I think if I had tried to you know diversify the business and bring in like manicures and makeup I just I don't think the business would have become what it did in my heart of hearts Obviously,
1: it has become a huge business. I feel like there's dry bars in every city I go
8: to. At least there's
1: 107. That, yeah, it's crazy. I don't know how that happened. And I think what dry bar did is it made the blowout a thing. Not only are there a ton of copycat dry bars out there that I see here in New York, but you can't go to a salon without them offering a blowout, which is not something they offered a decade ago. Oh, it's so true. So what is it like to see so many people kind of copying
7: something you started. It's so funny. I mean, it's it's crazy how much this business evolved and how it was such a small idea in the beginning. I mean, I have naturally really curly hair. I grew up in South Florida where it was like frizzy hair. And, you know, I just always, dreamt of a place like Dry Bar and, you know, seeing the success of it and how much it was needed has been incredibly humbling and, and yeah, seeing the copycats and all of that. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it was definitely harder to take in the beginning, but I do believe we have a very secret sauce and something that makes Dry Bar very unique and special and different than anything else out there. I mean, a lot of it, it comes from, you know, my background of doing hair and my, my brother's business sense and my husband's branding and, you know, all of those things together. But, you know, I think it was like, I, I felt like in this weird way, it was like my duty to bring a place like Dry Bar to the world. And we obviously didn't invent blowouts. We just created a much better experience and price point. And I think that was kind of my big aha moment that I was like, if the price is affordable, women will do this often. If the price is too expensive, they won't. And, and they weren't. I mean, they weren't going to hide to, you know, their, well, what they were doing was going to their cotton collar salon. And basically overpaying or going to a discount chain and just not having a great experience. And I wanted to be in the middle of that, like uh, an affordable luxury, an affordable price. And you could do this once a week. You could make that work in your budget and walk out you know, feeling like a supermodel. It, you know, I felt like certainly there'd be enough, I felt like there was enough women out there like me, at least in LA where, I was, where we started the first location that would, would love it. And lucky enough they did. Yeah, lucky. I mean, it's like we're doing over a million blowouts a year now. It's it's insane. I mean, I there's nobody more like surprised and humbled by our success than me. I mean, and my brother and my husband like we just were like we're, we're comp- always blown away by how big this has become and how much people love the brand. So obviously now you your business is so big and you've had so much
1: success. What is one piece of advice you would give to a woman who has what she thinks is a great idea? but doesn't have the confidence to pitch it to a wider
7: audience. Well, I think you have to get over that. You know, I think it, when you become an entrepreneur and or the boss, and you are just the you just have to kind of get over that fear of people, you know, telling you no because you will get no a lot, and you will get a lot of people who don't maybe get it, you know, and you want to latch on to those people who you trust and who do get it and are willing to kind of ride this this dream with you. And you know, I always tell people, you know, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you and know things that you don't. And obviously, I'm living proof of that with, you know, my 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 brother who is the business side of things and my husband who is the branding side of things. And you know, you have to, be willing to look in the mirror and say I'm I'm not good at everything, and here's what my strength is, and here's what I can here's what I can do, but I need to fill in what for what I don't have, and and not be afraid to like fail and stumble and, and keep going and pursuing your passion. And you listen, like not, not every idea is gonna work, and, and the, you know it's it's like a good it's a dime a dozen a, a good idea. It's like about execution, and that's where bringing in other partners and other people who can really help bring your vision to life is incredibly important.
1: Allie, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your wisdom with us. You You can listen to Raising the Bar with Allie and Michael every week. New episodes come out every Tuesday. Don't go away. Up next, we're going to see Isaac and Saeed's adventures in Portland.
9: Get in, loser. We're going tweeting.
1: (laughs) Ha-ha!
9: It's fine. Let's take a selfie.
10: Four, four, for four, four. <laughs> what a bargain. All right, thanks, man. Are we there yet? Isaac, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Saeed, this is not driving Miss Ferocity.
9: AM to PDX, brought to you by Wendy's 4 for 4 Meal. The Darling Jones has
10: arrived. (laughs) We're here, of course, to talk about making the most of Portland. And we're here, we're like in the city. I'm probably getting us lost right now. (laughs) Making the most of being lost.
9: On Twitter, we asked for places to go to get tattoos and we met the wonderful Lisa. Isaac made the decision that I would be allowed to pick out a tattoo. I am going to get the Sagittarian arrow. Mm -hmm. Isaac is gonna get the bow. The The bow
10: bow and the arrow. arrow. Who's first? Isaac, what? <laughs> well, I feel like you should go first. That's where we're gonna get the real magic. Is
9: that what we're calling? It? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh huh, uh
10: huh. Every once in a while, I'm still startled. Hello, little arrow. I'm so taken. <laughs> ah, you're so beautiful.
9: <laughs> oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. Ah, your love has scarred me.
10: Yeah.
9: Twice. But I love it. There it is. Welcome back.
10: Welcome back. You know, when Saeed was like, I'd be willing to get tattoos together, <laughs> I was just like, Portland was such a beautiful tattoo town. I knew. We could kind of make the most of our visit Mm -hmm. by getting these super sappy 90s friendship matching (laughs) tattoos. Oh my God, I love it! They're so fast. We're headed to Powell's, which is the world's largest independent bookstore. It's a Portland institution. The reason it's exciting to be in Powell's
3: is
11: because there's nothing like it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. It has a million books on the
10: shelf. But you also, in the evening, like, you host so many different authors, and then you put their names on the The
11: Marquee! In the 1980s, Portland was considered kind of a provincial town. The words that uh, publishers would use, they were trying to avoid the word podunk. Portland has just blossomed over the last 30 years. We have been part of
5: that blossoming.
10: We're heading now from Powell's to Toro Bravo, a restaurant owned by John Gorham, who owns a ton of restaurants. And so he really knows about the different factors that came into play as Portland grew, and dare I say, the ingredients. He's like the sausage king of Portland. I feel like the restaurant industry here has just exploded. It all started from the
11: farmers and ranchers, the fact that we have such a great area for food to be grown and so many special things, from our berries to our lamb to our grass. So I think a lot of chefs flocked here. It was easy to do what you wanted. There was an audience for chefs to be creative, and it was cheap to do it.
9: A lot of nouns and verbs I want to use, mm. but I'm but I enjoyed it all. Nice. Yes. Yes, Queen. Yes. you're
11: so good.
10: Making the most. most. Make the most.
9: Most. Have you made it? Make. Making the most.
10: Make it. Made. As you can tell, it's time for us to go to sleep.
9: We've seen how Portland came together, the how and the why. But then, once you have the city, like, how are you living in its modern iteration? I'm so excited we get to talk to CJ McCollum. He's a player on the Portland Trailblazers, has a great youth camp, and it's just doing really interesting work with the city that we are in now. What is it about Portland that you
10: love? This is the, the city that gave me a chance. Whether I was playing well or playing poorly, or not playing at all, they still showed me love, so it's really good people. Great wine here, great food and restaurants. A
9: lot of people, Just being a professional NBA player for the Portland Trail Blazers, would be, that'd be making the most. When did you, in your career, in your life, say, no, if I'm gonna make the most of my life, I need to be doing more, because you have this Youth Basketball.
10: It started my rookie year. The type of impact you can have on the kids' lives. I think they pay a lot of attention to professional athletes and people that they consider their role models. And with this platform, I think it's a great opportunity to give back, provide camps, provide knowledge, wisdom, and try to help them become better men and women, first and foremost, and then better basketball players. But you're also a big part of the Twitter community. How do you make the most of Twitter? I just try to be genuine and authentic. I think that's the biggest thing. And we're all ignorant in certain areas, but it's more about seeking knowledge. Having those conversations with people, those uncomfortable conversations are really important. figuring out you know how to respect someone's opinion and not agree with it just a couple of kings oh that's true it's just coming to queen
9: we are at the international rose test
10: Mm -hmm. garden we're going to basically uh one take a lot of instagram photos get into this something we've been thinking about traveling on a budget you know because money goes fast Mm -hmm. when you're traveling and it is a hundred percent free my favorite price free 99. i want to be a rose influencer you don't even know about this life you're living
9: honey Rose moment, darling. Coming for the girls. Well, we are headed out of Portland.
10: The story of Portland, for me at least, is like kind of this small town that's really grown into itself, mm-hmm. you know?
9: Everyone we spoke to, everyone was very aware of their people.
10: What was the quote that you said when you posted the, the We photo? fly faster and farther together. Mm. Love it. Can we show them to the camera one more
9: time? One more time. Just really.
10: This is the sit down, and I'm here with Reed Morano and Peter Dinklage, the director and star of the new movie. I think we're alone now. Thank you guys so much for joining me this morning. Thank you for having us. Really appreciate it, congrats on the movie. For those that don't know Reed, can you tell us a little bit about the story and why you wanted to tell it now?
8: Um, Well, it's a story about, well, we find ourselves watching this guy and uh, watching his routine and slowly begin to realize that he's totally on his own. And, you know, it's a post-apocalyptic story that reveals that somewhat slowly because there's no one else around he's not talking about it. there's no voiceover um, and it's more about the aftermath of what would it be like if you you know just have to keep going on mm-hmm. after that happens and everyone else disappears And I- then eventually one day uh, someone else does show up.
10: I wanted to ask just like one simple question. How did you guys, the bodies were wrapped in the in the blankets and then they're dragging them through the fields. How'd you guys build that prop? Well. <laughs> There's not like PAs in there, right? No, we had. Sheesh blankets and
11: shower curtains and.
8: We had a body, <laughs> we of had like bodies. four <laughs> bodies basically. Four bodies on rotation. Uh-huh. Cause they were done by like some really incredible um, special effects guys who made us, you know, at one point on my, when we were prepping the movie, I had like really questionable Google searches that were like (laughs) stages of decomposition of the human body so I could accurately figure out like, okay, it's been this long since the apocalypse happened. Uh, In the Cars and the traffic jam. The bodies would have looked like this. in the, you know, if they were in a house that was, you know, windows were shut, it, it would bodies would smell good. You know, <laughs> and smell good, and so yeah, the bodies. We had like four that were on rotation. The same four bodies kept showing up and yeah. different wigs, and um, so the hair and makeup people kind of worked really hard to make them look different and
11: uh how many preservatives each one ate in their food yes <laughs> the body well it came across preserve longer they had those, i mean it was it and was. then we had extras it was really in impressive the cars. we did yeah.
8: have extras in the car yeah, who, crew
11: members who were just doing this in the car
8: so. some that were uh when you were walking by, I remember somebody like looked at you. <laughs>
10: yeah, I know. <laughs> and you're like, you're, you're not supposed to be doing that. And you're like, hey, gonna cut or off. Or
8: somebody like got out of the car in the middle of the. Truck. Yeah,
10: that's because they had to stretch their legs. <laughs> yeah. And then all I of a sudden, it does should... become a zombie movie yeah. instead yeah. of what it is, which is this incredibly quiet film about what life would be like after everyone else dies. So I wanted to ask, uh, it's so beautifully shot. What's your favorite part about directing?
8: Um. Actors. Actors for sure. (laughs) I mean, we're fun. (laughs) They—that is my favorite part, actually, because the—the I think shooting initially was the way for me to get into that process, and also operating the camera is a way for me to like directly affect the scene, like kind of interact and or just be reactive off of the actors as they do what they do, and find um, sort of a an emotional camera. Um, to be part of the storytelling and, and directing. What's great about it is now is that I can sort of, I can be the one to affect a little bit in some small way where, you know, watch what they do and get to see them do these things and interpret the scene in their way. And then when the time is right to go in and maybe just like have like one thought of what if this, and then you get to see how each actor would interpret that differently and then it becomes like a chemistry test between two people. Like, you know, you see how they react off each other. I love that you're like, I'm like a mad
10: chemist. Kind of really just pouring these things. It's
8: a very like, (laughs) manipulative. No, but it's so fun (laughs) because you get ideas and then you get theories about the characters and then like, but it's like no one person is ever gonna do something the same. So like, any idea you have you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like it's like I might say something that means something to me, to you, and All you right. might interpret it completely differently and it might be a million it's gonna be a million times better than what I thought, you know, so yeah. whips. What,
10: what about you, Hopefully. Peter? What do you love about getting fucked with by directors? what do you love That's about being much an what actor? I guess, like, yeah, that is definitely what you just said. I love it am I d <laughs> I'm I'm
11: so game for everything, as long as everybody treats each other with kindness. Um, and Reed certainly does that. Um, it was very intimate. Mm. Um, this movie because really it's just me and Elle and Reed mm-hmm. in cars in small confined spaces bedrooms and uh, she many times was also the camera operator so it was very an immediate um, dialogue right, right uh, with, between the three of us we really didn't yell action or cut. We just sort of made it very fluid. And mm. uh, that was, I really appreciate that because that sort of takes away the performances, the element of it, which doesn't really work in movies. Um, um, so I really, really love that. You really? And obviously it. because of the world that we're presenting, it's, a, it's uh, two people alone in, in a vast landscape. We definitely needed someone like Reed.
10: Um, to shoot that beauty, um, because she's so, such a visual artist. Yeah, absolutely. You guys, you're talking about the closeness of the relationships that you have. Um, I heard that there was a group text between you two and also with Elle. Uh, what kind of things did you share on there? Is it still
8: going? Do you guys? It's still going. It's mostly GIFs.
10: Is there memes?
11: What's the difference between a meme and a GIF? I mean, a, a gift name, right? moves,
8: basically gift yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm into gifts Yeah, we and, do a lot of gifts yeah. <laughs> We have a man We managed to find gifts For every occasion Yeah But it's like It'll just come out of nowhere I mean, it was like She's 20
11: years old Yeah She's such a bright light She's yeah. so much fun and so you just feel like a young kid when you're around her. Yeah. So all of a sudden you can, you can get it. Yeah. from you oh, feel you get, a part get, of it. You get totally goofy and silly just like she is and, and it's, it's, it's just, she's a lot of fun to be around.
10: That's fantastic. Yeah.
11: She did such a great job. Yeah. I, think, I, I actually didn't know she was 20, so that's incredible. Um, Should you not say that? Should you not say people's age? I think no. when you're 20, it's fine to say you're 20. I think that's, yeah. I think that's, yes. yeah, yeah, I think that's it. found youth yeah. right now. Yeah. Like.
10: I mean, I'm not gonna tell you my age, but like I think 20, I think <laughs> right. it's all right. Absolutely. Yeah. I got you beat on that one though. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you directed The Handmaid's Tale, won an Emmy for for, for that episode. Only one of three women to win an Emmy in that category. What would you want to see change in Hollywood?
8: Uh, More women. (laughs) More women being uh, allowed to direct. Or just like, you know, there's still, it's getting better. And a lot of shows I've noticed and networks are making a mandate to hire more women. And um, I just think if they, that the industry will find if they do that, they're also gonna get a more more variety of perspectives mm. as well. So if you're like looking for the next new thing, it's possible that you might just wanna give uh, Give the other gender a try.
10: Wow, what a novel
11: idea! Uh, there's
8: plenty of us, and <laughs> we've got some really cool ideas.
11: Yeah, we've been running studios. How about that, too? Yeah. There we
10: go. And the, you know, the making the level. top dog decisions. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely, I think that's really important. Um, you've also got a lot of like *Handmaid's Tale* costumes being used at protests, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings. There are people there in *Handmaid*. What's, what's it mean to you to see this kind of jump into the real world?
8: It is. It's very weird, and I imagine it's something that's probably not super weird for you because, like, well, the, your, your, your fans show.
11: are much more politically active than ours. <laughs> <laughs> the,
10: the
8: Game
11: of Thrones fans are the greatest people I've ever met, but definitely there's the others. So.
8: Yeah, <laughs> like you, you know the cosplay. But yeah, for me, it, for me, it was weird because I've never worked on anything that became so iconic like you know timely. And, a poli- and timely
6: mm,
8: and um, timely. yeah and when we were I mean designing those costumes together uh you know with Ann Crabtree our costume designer and even you know it was like a team ever Bruce Miller and 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 Lizzie Moss was we we're they're all involved and and deciding like okay the opacity of the we used to, we called them barns, the, <laughs> the, barns, the bonnets. The barns, the shields. And like all these things, so and <laughs> we were just trying to like make it good for the show and make it make sense of the character. And it's so funny now that to watch people like walking around in those outfits and then going to to protest and stuff. I'm like, all right, Fantastic. cool. Fantastic.
10: To really fight the the good fight. It's um, creepy
8: at first, I think.
10: Yeah, but then I mean, it's also gives it gives this this group a whole other tool, which must feel really good. Um, you you brought up Game of Thrones. Are you a fan?
8: Uh, yeah. We don't. I don't really talk about it with Peter, but but uh. I Are you a fan? Yeah. Yeah.
10: We don't talk about it. No, we don't. I can tell you haven't talked because this is the first time you're talking about it. You think wow. I'm good on the show?
8: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
10: Thanks. Thanks. That means a lot. <laughs> How is he good?
8: How? Is he
10: good on the show?
8: <laughs> I mean, I love the character. Your i favorite actors. When you... Oh, ever? Yes, yes, Ever ever and when you the first time they like where I thought that they were killing you I was like fuck this fucking show I'm out like when I thought you died I was like peace I'm out of here and then I came back as, you know.
10: And you were like, and I'm back in. Yeah. I had the similar, similar reaction. I got to ask one question, Game of Thrones. Sure, man. All right, everybody's talking about this love triangle, all this and other that stuff. I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested the in spoilers. On our just, show, there's like love trapezoids and love <laughs> quadragons. <quadrahedians.
11: laughs> Hexagons, yeah.
10: But like, I want to talk a little bit like for Tyrion to end up on the Iron Throne. Just a little projection, a little fan fiction. How do you think he'd go about it? How does Tyrion end up King. Um, How does he or what would he do? What would he do? I think he'd be
11: very fair. Yeah. Very fair leader. Yeah. But
10: uh, yeah. You're like, I like my character, and I think he'd do a good job. Mm -hmm. He's got a good moral compass. He does have a good moral compass, and I think we've got to see that build. Mm -hmm. That's really great. Well, thank you guys both so much for joining me this morning. Really, really absolutely appreciate it. Um, Listen, I Think We're Alone Now is in theaters now. Don't miss it. It's a beautiful science fiction. We stayed away from a lot of the spoilers. You're going to want to watch it. Up next, more am to dm
1: Turn off our Twitter feeds, turn off our brains. Do you have any big plans this weekend?
0: Uh, Me and my couch are going to get very well acquainted. I plan on curling up with a pot of tea and uh, binging something or another. How about you?
1: Yeah, I think I'm going to go to New Jersey for the weekend.
0: As one does?
1: Yeah. You know, we're going to go visit one of my husband's friends. It should be a good time. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. Uh, In response to Dr. Shepard's analysis of Hurricane Florence, Michelle wrote us emphasis on the impact, not the category.
0: Let that be the lesson from today's top of the yeah, show. Yeah, and can we
1: just say that we love Dr. Shepard? He He's is
0: awesome. great. Yeah. Let's just have him on all the time. I know. All okay. right. I
1: want him to be our like weatherman. <gasps>
0: <laughs> Ideas. <laughs> You're <laughs> wow. that, producers? Let's get on this. Yes. We asked you what you thought of Cynthia Nixon's loss last night. Sarah Bella says, I think everyone kind of knew that Nixon had a very slim chance, if any, of winning. That said, she ran a great race, and I hope she runs again. I mean, that seems kind of likely-ish at this point.
1: Yeah, I... You know, all of the polling was saying that she was going to be way behind, and I feel like since Trump, I just don't trust polls, I was pretty shocked when it came out that she lost so early on.
0: I mean, it seemed like it was going that way, but she has such a huge turnout in New York City that I'm sure she's going to run for something else again.
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe maybe she'll try again. Who knows? Mayor? Yeah, who knows? Rachel Hay-Girlfield says, you have to run a lot when you are in politics. You don't always win, and you have to keep running. That's very true. I mean, this is the first time she's ever put hat in the ring. For
0: anything. If um, you went for governor.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think she should, you know, she could try again. Try yeah. Maybe something for a little smaller. Who knows?
0: A little bit. So, thank you to our guests. Dr. Marshall Shepard, Ryan Brooks, Mega Rajaka Rajagopalan, Tarini Party, Chris Geidner, Ali Webb, Peter Dinklage, and Reed Murano.
1: We have a great show for you next week. Yeah. We have Lynn Whitfield, Sold Out O'Brien, Snooki, and Chrissy Teigen on the show. So it's going to be a huge week. We hope you come back and tune in. And on Monday, I will be co-hosting, I am so excited, with our producer, Alex Burke. I Can't <laughs> wait for you guys to see her on air. It's going to be so great. So have a good weekend, and we'll see you then.
0: Bye, guys.